0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of API's you won't hate this time. It's just me Phil with no mic. I I don't know what I'm doing. He, there's a lot of buttons on my screen and I'm a little bit scared and confused, but I, I think it's recording. I think this is a podcast and thankfully to keep me company with this world of confusing options, I have two wonderful guests, Daryl Miller, who has been on the show before and a new guest, Vincent Did we get that right? Yes. Perfect. Yay. Fantastic. Welcome both. So you, Vincent, would you like to just tell everyone who you are?
1: Yeah, sure. Hi everyone. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you in person, making our quotes at the same time, Phil. And I'm based out of Montreal. I'm a principal developer on the Microsoft Graph client experience team. And I work a lot with Daryl on the day-to-day basis.
2: Nice. Daryl. who, who are you? Uh, I work at Microsoft as an API architect. On the microsoft graph and in my spare time i spent some time working on the open api specification and a few ietf http related specifications
0: nice and i'm really glad that you could both come today to talk all about open ai and the latest happenings with sam altman our (laughs) lips are sealed we can say nothing okay right yeah no i do often confuse open ai and open api so yeah let's let's talk about that one so you guys have made, with a, lo- a lot of other people involved, I'm sure, you've made another SDK tool that's a little bit different from some of the others. But first, we have to ask ourselves, what is an SDK? What is this tool all about?
2: Well, I, first of all, I want to say we, we are trying not to call it an SDK generator because SDK ah. as a term comes with a lot of baggage and is confusing and people have different understandings of what it means. And so we like to call it an API client code generator, which is a bit more of a mouthful, but it is a bit bit more explicit. Vincent, (laughs) tell them what it does.
1: Well, it will, for any REST API that you have that has an open API description, it will take that and generate client code to call your REST API with Fluent API in the code and models, and it will handle transition, disorganization, and a number of different aspects for you. So you can get going, calling your API, and you focus on what matters, writing the code for your application, and not just you know handling serialization, deserialization, and nitty gritty details like that. Brilliant. And so we've had
0: we've had a couple of cool a uh, couple of podcasts about kind of SDK generators, client stuff mm-hmm. in the past. I think it depends on what happens between recording and actually publishing stuff. But like one of the last ones was about that we talked about Fern in the past, and we've talked about Appomatic. And so now we're talking about Kyoto, not Kyoto, yes. Kyoto from Microsoft. And it's a little bit different. I noticed that you're trying to take the approach. I mean, some of these SDK generation tools kind of come across like you are the API development team and you don't have time to be writing in a Go library and R library and other languages that you might not know. So just run this command and then ta-da, it's been published. and all different API developers use all different SDK generators and some they write by hand and some they use different tools. And so everyone's API SDK looks a little bit different. It seems right. like you folks were going for a slightly different approach of kind of, you're an API client and you could you could grab a bunch of different open APIs from different people and generate a whole bunch of SDK, well, API client libraries yourself so that you can work with other people's APIs. Is that about right or have I just butchered it?
1: No, it's perfect actually. You could you could do the podcast on on your own by yourself. You already know everything here. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm gonna grab a coffee instead. But yeah, the idea is to as you can still use Kyoda to as an API producer, to put SDKs out there to reuse your own term and and offer those to your customers, you can perfectly do that with Kyoda, of course. But we set out on a different approach, as you said, to Make sure that you have a consistent experience across multiple APIs. More and more nowadays, projects or applications have to integrate between multiple APIs, multiple vendors that they use, and having to you know, find out whether or not they have a package for you in your language first, and then learn the semantics and the different aspects of this specific package for each and every API you consume potentially get into dependencies, conflicts, and having to resolve that, which is always awesome to do. We, we really want to get rid of all that, that experience for, for people. And instead, say, all right, you have your API consuming tool, an API discovery tool for that matter, because Kyoda also offers search and discovery commands and, and, and features as well to allow you to discover public APIs out there. And then you pick and choose not only the different APIs you're interested in from the different vendors or partners or whatnot. But you can even get down to choosing a specific operation under a specific endpoint. So now you get a client that is very specific to you what you actually need to do. And you get this consistent experience, code writing experience, across multiple API
2: providers. Yes. So, Phil, the problem is developers have opinions. We all have opinions about HTTP. And when people go and say, hey, I need to build an SDK for my... API so that everybody will use it. So PHP developers will use it and Ruby developers will use it. We all go and build these libraries that say, well, this is the way that an HTTP API should be projected into into the native programming language. And the problem with having every API provider have their opinions on how their API should be projected, it means that poor API consumer now has to deal with Everybody's opinions of every API that they go and talk to. So the Kyoto approach is, well, if you can put up with our opinion, the Kyoto opinion on how you project HTTP APIs, you can then use Kyoto for every API that you want to talk to, and you only have to learn how to do it once. And we are, we are as unopinionated, other than having HTTP opinions, like. We don't take the HP methods and say, well, usually when it's a post, it means create, therefore we're going to use the create verb on the method. Mm. We just tell you, there's your post. Here's how you put HP headers in. Here's how you put query parameters in. Here's how you format a request body. You understand the uniform interface. We're just translating it into your programming language and we'll deal with the really annoying stuff like figuring out how to percent encode code for amateurs in a query string and how to use a URI template to Mm, construct. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. All those ugly things that those edge cases of HP, we take care of, but you take our projected code, which people have said, yeah, this is not how, this is not an optimum experience for this API. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's not an optimum experience for the API. Put an adapter in front of it and create a perfect experience for your uh, particular application that you're building. And use it as a mocking interface and then hide our projected code behind it. You're never going to get beautiful projected code. And we keep trying to do Mm. that based on a whole bunch of people's opinions. And you'll never get everybody to agree on what the perfect projection of an HTTP API is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: in in most kind of worlds of frameworks, there's a whole bunch of different coding patterns that people prefer and then you know happens in Laravel all the time everyone goes from repository pattern event bust all these different things and like different different naming conventions and everything else so yeah certain communities can't be consistent with themselves and even if they do reach consistency at any point it changes so it can be really hard to try and make something that 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 makes everyone happy and I saw I remember I remember seeing you give a talk at one of God knows how many conferences a couple of years ago about putting the kitchen
2: SDK was what it was called.
0: Yeah, uh, that's the one. It was like, yeah, how to make good SDKs mm-hmm. or whatever. And a lot of it was talking about middlewares. Do you still have a bunch of middleware logic in Kyoto? Did you
2: manage to get that in there? Yes, indeed. It's all built on that pattern. Vincent, you want to go into a bit of the details of the underlying bits? Sure. So the,
1: the code we generate only relies on a set of abstractions that we publish, of course, which means that as soon as you generate a client for an API and that you pull the abstractions package, you'll be able to build your project solution application, whatever. It won't do anything, of course, because you'll be missing a bunch of implementations, but at least it will build. And then for those abstractions that are for executing the HTTP request, serializing, deserializing, and the authentication aspects as well, we provide default implementations that you're more than happy, more than welcome to use and import in your project or your application. But if you're not happy with those because you need a different serialization format or you prefer a different library, for example, you can re-implement those abstractions and, and swap those away. And if we focus on HTTP and executing the request, one of the abstractions we have is the request adapter. And we have a default implementation that also provides a bunch of middlewares for retry handling, compression handling, redirection handling, and a different of other things, set of other things as well. And, and now, if you want to add custom behavior to that, you can, of course, just write additional middleware if you're happy with a client of choice we've selected, or if you're not happy at all with a client, HTTP client we've selected, you can, of course, re-implement the whole interface and, 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 and do whatever you prefer here. But yes.
0: That's Brilliant. Yeah, because middlewares are just increasingly becoming the thing I'm the most interested in when it comes to pretty much any part of working with APIs, right? Because the, the actual business logic of of most APIs is quite small. It's usually like, oh, we're going to call a model and add some stuff and do a bit of validation, but that's like three lines of code and it punts it off to a whatever service, some sort of service class. But the most important like API logic, both both client side and server side most stuff can be implemented as middlewares and mm-hmm. everything from you know rate limiting and caching and i was just doing a whole series of posts about like item potency keys and and things like that yep. and both the client and the server can just kind of install one package and just register it and and, and use that so is there a bunch of like pre-built stuff for I, kyoto like do you have support
1: for item potency keys because that'd be fun now, so this one specifically, we don't have, but it will be very easy for you for any language we provide and support today to say, "I want to add support for idempotency keys and write yeah. up a middleware and add it to your chain and use the same exact client you just generated with Qtile. You don't need to change if you generate the generated code at all or touch any of that. You just need to add your cross-cutting concern implementation, and, and and you're good to go. And and better than that, we work a lot in the open as an open source project, so. If you feel like what you've built it would be valuable to others, we'll be more than well, happy to see pull requests coming our way and 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 you know make others benefit from your hard work here. So yep. Yeah.
2: Did you awesome. notice? Sounds like it does. Did Did you Ooh, notice Phil the, in the latest update to the item potency, item potency spec in the ITF that hasn't quite been gone through last call yet? There was some wording that was changed that now allows a client to send an item potency key, even if they don't know whether the server supports it or not. And this this came from browser vendors because the browser vendors were like, hey, it would be really handy when we're posting to send an item potency key in the hope that maybe the server supports it. And then if the server does, then 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 cool. So you don't need this pre-negotiated contract. To, oh, I know that the server implements it. Therefore, I'm going to send it. You can just always send it on a post if if you want that post to be ideal. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they already kind of take a huge amount of guesses at various caching yeah. logic and and do a bunch of things for you. And like most browsers will already say, like, are you sure you want to refresh this page? Because that means you're gonna, uh, you know, resend this data. Now they can change that to be like, "Are you sure you want to refresh this? Because it might <laughs> resend the thing." Oh, but if they've had like good responses and they know that it does support it, then they can be like, "Yeah, you can refresh this, and not have to show you the message." That's pretty handy. Cool. Bit of a tangent on item potency keys there, but there's a blog post I'll tell you all about it. I wrote one for the APIs You Won't Hate blog that was mostly just me complaining about getting charged three times for a hotel, but then I wrote another one for HTTP Toolkit on their blog, which is actually useful. So go and check that one out. Now that I'm done plugging my stuff on my stuff, (laughs) I am curious what Microsoft's interest in all this is. Why did you start building Kyoto? Did you just want to save API developers from writing boring SDKs? Or is there a bigger business reason? Both. Both,
1: actually. I think, so So for context, both Daryl and I work for Microsoft Graph, which is one of the largest REST APIs in the world both in terms of traffic and in terms of number of, of operations we support to give you an idea we have about 20,000 different unique operations in, on the v1 endpoint so that makes for 70 plus megabytes open api description for the whole thing good lord uh, yeah and and so we we found ourselves in a situations where the traditional the existing generators out there would not scale in terms of how fast they can generate things. They would not scale in terms of naming conventions and other things that that Daryl mentioned earlier, because they would try to generate clever methods name, and that would not work at that scale, of course. And they would also not allow for more advanced scenarios like selecting the different endpoints you care about or not, selecting the different operations you care about or not, and generating code just for those things. And so this is how we set out to, or this is why we set out to build yet another client code generator for REST APIs a couple of years ago with Darl to not only solve our business needs, but we built it in such a way that it's not just for Microsoft Graph and, and the DevX developer experience for Microsoft Graph, but also that it's really useful for the broader community and the industry at large. And hopefully people find it useful, yeah.
0: Oh, I see. So you just release the you you really you release the software so that other people can fix your bugs for you, and then you can say, "Well, open source."
1: Yeah, of course. Open source is great. We get people work for us for free. No, but we <laughs> we, we are already collaborating with Red Hat on on on, on Qura, and we and made a, a, a key decision to ship a bunch of clients based off Cura for a different set of projects they have. We are also nice. working with GitHub for their client experience as well. There are a number of different players out there that not only, you know, get benefits from the open source and the fact they can use it right off the bat, but they also contribute back to the project. So it's not just, you know, us trying to offload bug fixes to the community at this point, right? So, so yeah, yeah. The other benefit
2: right. of the approach that we took, well, there's two, there's two benefits. As one is, as Vincent said, it's really big, our API, So nobody wants to use the entire API. So they want this ability to just project code just for the parts of the API they care about. But the other thing is a lot of our customers who are doing work with Microsoft Graph, which stores like all your your data for if you have an an M365 license, so your email, your calendar, your contacts, all of that kind of stuff. A lot of it is integration scenarios with either integration with internal systems or integration with other third-party systems. And we found a lot of our customers were doing work where they are making two APIs talk to each other which is where this consistency story starts to come into play. And we found there were a lot of our customers uh, who just, who weren't using our SDKs. And our understanding was, yes, it's just another SDK that they have to learn. And this was, this was a big piece of feedback that we've got from customers that people are just tired of going and learning yet another SDK. And they're like, I know how to make HTTP calls. And they'll just go do it themselves because they don't want to have to deal with multiple different SDKs. And so Kyoto was was a reaction to that kind of scenario that our customers are running into. And we need to go build them anyway. And Vincent and I had lots of conversations about how, how open source this would be. And it's taken us a little while to really convince our management that we should be building things that for customers who are not directly our customers, but there's a lot of indirect benefits to shipping something that conforms very well to a standard, like Open API. That's
0: that's always a really hard, a hard one to push, isn't it? It's like, hey, can we do loads of work that won't make us money directly? Because <laughs> they're like, yeah, open source the SDKs. That's great. You don't need to open source the thing that makes the SDKs. I mean, how how much extra work has gone in? That's like how long is a piece of string? But like how how much extra work has gone into making it something you could? you know, confidently released to the public versus something that was just fine for your needs. Yeah, that's,
1: Ooh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Huh? We don't want to admit um, that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Fair laughs> enough.
2: So, but, and, and this is the, the challenge is it's usually when you run into, there's two scenarios. One is when you run into a problem that we have with our API and there's an obvious easy shortcut that you can take that will solve it for us, but won't solve mm. it for anybody. And you've got to sell that to management as like, no, we can't take the shortcut because that won't deliver the bigger picture. And then there's the other scenario. The classic one that we keep running into is we'll call an API and they'll return a list of things as an array, a JSON array. And Mm. we don't ever do that in Microsoft Graph because we follow a set of OData conventions that says everything has to be an object at the root. Even collections are an object with a values property that contains an array. And so we'll keep going and we'll try it against the idea. Oh, damn, there's a scenario that doesn't exist in grass. And then we've got to justify going, spending the time to go fix that. And our, our management mm. are great. They have They have come to terms with the fact that integration scenarios are an absolutely worthwhile thing. And we're starting to gain a lot more traction with other teams, either across Microsoft and across the industry, which again, helps to justify doing it, but yeah, it, it, it's a non-trivial amount of work and it requires continuous convincing of management that it is worthwhile doing.
1: Yeah. And, and I think also another part that we spend time on, which we wouldn't if we had not open sourced the, the generator, is the experience of a tool itself, like how to well structure the commands and provide actionable feedback to users using the, the generator. We also built a VS Code extension and an integration of the tool in VS Code. All of that, of course, is not directly supporting our core business, but it brings broader adoption, it bring of the tool itself, and it brings more people to contribute to the tool. and And that has largely paid off. In case any of our managers are listening to the podcast, it has paid off already. Like for example, on the Java front, Red Hat has done tremendous work to get to a much better java story in terms of generation and and if we had not open source the generator if we had not you know started building a community around around kyoda we would not have gotten those benefits right so ah,
0: that is brilliant and i'm glad you threw that in there just for your managers in case they are listening <laughs> slightly different topic i mean i don't think we've talked about microsoft graph the before and that That sounds like a massive API. That sounds blooming complicated. So is it a a series of smaller APIs or is it just one massive API with loads of operations? And is there any difference between those two things really apart from implementation detail? It's hundreds
2: of APIs produced by completely different organizations at Microsoft that in different languages on different tech stacks that all get sewn together into kind of like a federate, like a GraphQL federation data, and gateway, but mm-hmm. using OData conventions instead. And this is one of our other interesting challenges. We actually don't natively use open API to describe our APIs. It's ironic. It's like right. in some of the backends do use open API as they're building it. But then when they come to Microsoft graph, they have to provide us with what's called a CSDL description which is XML based format. And you should see some of the, the more junior engineers as they join Microsoft. And we tell them, yeah, you've got to go and create this XML description of your API.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Use this language. That's like, it sucks and there isn't types and everything's like a Boolean or a string and just well, don't worry about t- it. There are lots of, um,
2: but, but, but it's, it, it has its challenges, but we're using that language, we can basically, sew the, the, AP, all of these different APIs together into one coherent description and provide a single surface area and the technology problem is not the biggest thing that we solve it's getting different parts of microsoft's organization to talk to each other like how many different companies have you dealt with where you ask them to change your address and then you change your address and then you get a letter from them three weeks later that's going to the wrong address because they have your address stored 74 times well we provide that role as a centralized place that says no. There should only be one representation of a user's profile photo. There should be only one representation of a user's contact information, and that's that's kind of the the business value of Microsoft Graph, is it provides that one unified surface area to our customers for doing integrations with that data.
0: That's awesome. So yeah that's that's the more interesting part i feel like of api governance that a lot of people don't get around to talking about because they haven't quite got that far yet like when when people start trying to figure out what api governance is and how to do it then it's mostly just like looking at pull requests and saying don't do that but it's it's usually kind of focused on that's not the right naming convention that's not the right security thing like i you know i've been pushing this for a long time because i build tools that help you do that but it's kind of getting people started with the idea of it but the the more interesting thing has always been trying to automate some of that dumber stuff, some of that more simple stuff, um, patterns, standards, conventions. Automate as much as you can, so that you can then start to focus on more domain modeling. Where you're like, yeah, don't there's there's already a over there. How are you going to keep it in sync? Oh, you're going to do a two way sync? Not on my watch, son. You know, and and just kind of just bouncing like, bad ideas out of the entire ecosystem is is far more interesting. So. One of the most
2: interesting conversations that we have with teams is when they show a user's name and the first question we ask is, are you getting that from our central identity location? No, we we, we keep a copy of it over here. And we're like, oh no, you don't because people change their names (laughs) and it can do serious damage to people if they change their name and that doesn't immediately get propagated throughout our entire system yeah. and we get some funny looks from teams where we're like oh no 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 you've got to go back and change your system you can't store that you can cache it for a short period of time but no you have to guarantee that you're going to sync that name before we'll actually ship the API so it, it, it's interesting the areas we get into conversations about in what is you know API governance. Mm
0: yeah awesome i mean we had the same same problem that we work where users could live in multiple different systems and there was a a three-way sync between you know two different monoliths that had roughly half the data that, that everything needed and like salesforce that we also had a copy of Blim and everything and they all had different validation rules so when you updated it in one place it might make it to one or two of the other systems but it might not <laughs> yeah. so you just had all this like crazy different information and they all use like email as a unique key across all the systems which would change and break everything so yeah trying to keep data in sync is the dumbest part of the kind of was the hardest most annoying and often dumbest part of microservice architecture because you're like what if we split up all this code into multiple separate distinct things that then don't have access to anything and we'll just copy and paste everything everywhere and everything's worse So you really need those very experienced people that can just sit there and say, yeah, not under my roof, whenever someone tries to copy stuff.
2: And the response is, but but, but, we have to ship this next
0: week. Yeah, it'll be okay this time, I promise. It won't be like every other time. Cool. I mean, what other other troubles do you have corralling that many different APIs
2: into one architecture? I mean, it's the reinventing of the wheel, which is, no, please don't implement another... RBAC type security system that's specific to your particular product in the corner of the system. I think that's one of the other common things that we get into. I mean... Role-based authentication. Yes. Role-based something. authentication. Controls. Access control. Role-based access control. That's what RBAC. There um, we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's probably the other biggest area. The other area is is it is continues to surprise me how a lot of people don't think of resource modeling and they just look at a URL as just a string of characters that has no necessary organize. It's just words and nice words that you string together and they don't mm. think of, you know, how are people going to go and use this API beyond the very specific scenario that uh, we are designing for today and we're shipping for a particular product. It's a case of, no, you have to think about that customer who needs to get access to data and they might want to do something different with the API than you would considered. How can we make that possible without generating a massive amount of work and building an infinitely capable machine that nobody is going to use or a large part of the stuff that you built? So I think it's that just generalized design for serendipitous reuse that's but it's hard for people to
0: mm, yeah because you you either go the this is just raw data do with it what you will maximum flexibility no control mm-hmm. or or you kind of go like these are the workflows we have really optimized for and they're going to be sick if you want to do this thing with it but if you want to do anything else it's awful yeah that is the constant sliding scale of terribleness
2: that is API yeah, And design. you need to find some happy yeah. medium somewhere in between and make sure you also design it in a way that's going to work well for the client code that we're going to project for you because sometimes you can design Mm. APIs that are like oh that's just not going to work well in native programming languages you know like people who do lots of APIs that return very dynamic responses or APIs Mm. that return raw oh yeah well we don't want to schematize this part of the API yeah
0: yeah we've got an API that just like one endpoint just like spits iCalendar format at you (laughs) and we've managed to get rid of that because it was a bit gross and weird but yeah, it's just like none of the tools are okay because they're expecting JSON, maybe XML. And then all of a sudden it's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so yeah, understand that. I mean, bringing it back to Kyoto for a second, you just by way of wrapping up as well, we'll probably getting to about time, but obviously you guys are doing such a wonderful job at making Microsoft graph be very consistent and therefore any you would expect if, if the open API is fairly consistent and follows patterns, and the APIs are, are fairly consistent and follow patterns, then those SDKs are going to be pretty, you know, standard with each other. But for other people, like the example of a client who is talking to ten different APIs made by ten different people, and you've kiotified a lot of them, how much does different open API affect the kind of consistency of the SDK? or well, the, the API client code that is then generated from it?
1: I would say not that much because, uh, again, as, as Daryl mentioned at the beginning, one, one of the key design aspects is that the only opinionated choices we've made were around HTTP and the conventions and whatnot, and we stuck to as close as HTTP conventions as we could. And, and For example, if you take the Fluent API surface that we project for you to call the different operations and, and points and whatnot. One, the way it is structured is that it follows the path segmentation of your API, because not only it's easier to map mentally to know, oh yeah, this method or this code path on in my code maps to that operation on the API, but also it allows us to neatly structure the code we generate and potentially avoid any conflicts if you have things with different names but with the same names but at different levels and whatnot. So now, if you look at different descriptions and different APIs, even though their domains are different, even though the terms they are using are different, the organization of the fluent API surface and the models and the other conventions are going to be the same. They are going to be mostly based on the HTTP conventions, and there is going to be another layer of conventions added by, by Kyoda, but it, we try to keep it as thin as possible, so it's it's super easy for you to Mentally map your way through the different clients we generate here
0: Brilliant. All right, well, I'm going to recommend that all you listeners go and have a look at Kyoto because you might think you're being clever by just doing a like a file get contents and bung in a URL and then just like hope that thing works. but every time you'd you kind of directly just write your own little SDK, you've just built a bad SDK. And it's brittle, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and it's going to be different every time, and you don't have the ability to wrap that in beautiful, fantastic middlewares that can can chuck in timeout logic consistently easily, that can chuck in caching logic consistently easily, so yeah, if you have a bunch of like direct dependencies that you've written yourself, delete those, and maybe Kyoto can be the way to replace them. Thank you very much, Vincent and Daryl for coming on, and uh, I think. I think this is actually recorded the whole way through. I think we're okay. I think we did a podcast.
1: Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so so much for having us. (laughs) Thanks, Phil. Cheers, guys. Have a good one. Bye.